This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Hi, this is Mark Rako, the head of content and programming for Mouth Media Network and the producer of American Enough. Vikram Iyer and I had the opportunity to attend the 2018 Concordia Summit in New York City, adjacent to the United Nations General Assembly, and it was uh, a remarkable gathering of minds and diplomats from around the world. And Vikram had the opportunity to spend time discussing some very important topics with a number of very influential and important people. I hope you'll enjoy this remarkable discussion from the Concordia Summit. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. So as the as, as multiple countries from around the globe gather in New York City for the UN General Assemblies, one key issue continues to rear its head, and that's how do we train workers for the 21st century? There are a lot of new tensions that pull at that. You know, you have more disaggregated independent workers through made possible by apps like Uber or Handy. You have the promise or threat of automation impacting work. And so you hear a lot of conversations about how do we upskill workers for this modern economy. And yet, even still, you hear from CEOs across the country that they have jobs, they have openings, but there's an issue filling them. But in this whole debate, one thing that you almost rarely hear about it, unless you're involved in deep, deep advocacy circles of criminal justice reform, is an entire pipeline of workers, formerly incarcerated, looking to be productive members of society, in many cases actively are productive members of society, but there seems to be a barrier between leaving a prison pipeline and being able to be a worker, to participate in the labor market and just contribute again. What's holding that up? What's creating those tensions? Well, I think it's the way society views men and women who have been involved in the criminal justice system. What we used to say at the Fortune Society is that uh, men and women involved in the criminal justice system was always at the back of the line when it came to opportunities for work and employment uh, so people can uh, have a different life and they can contribute to their society, contribute to society. What we've seen is that that line has gotten longer for them. It's gotten longer because many of the men and women who are coming out of the criminal justice system have been failed by our school system. So they are far behind both in terms of their ability to be competitive for the jobs by way of skills and the way society sees formerly incarcerated men and women. So at the Fortune Society, we see about 7,000 men and women a year. About 700 of them go through our employment services where we help people obtain employment. And we do what's called skilling up. So we provide the skills necessary for people to be competitive. And there are a couple of markets that we're working in. One is culinary arts, two is construction, and, and three is driving CDL and driving for businesses like Uber and Lyft. So we are providing the skills for people to be competitive in today's market. And that's the gap. And, and so tell us a little bit more about Fortune Society. It's a uh, $35 million 
uh, nonprofit mm -hmm. that works very closely with the New York City government, mm -hmm. specifically to tackle this worker reentry issue, but also um, it focuses on broad range of policy and regulatory activity to try and address a lot of the systemic challenges that might even result in someone's incarceration. Um, how does that work in terms of what the Fortune Society sees as its core priorities? Well, our core priorities, our mission is to provide reentry services and alternatives to incarceration. So we do two things. One, provide a safety net for men and women coming home from prison. So we offer holistic wraparound services, substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment, employment, job readiness, education, housing, family reunification, crisis intervention, whatever services people need in order to build the new life that they envision for themselves. At the same time, we try to provide many people an off-ramp so that they don't have to be caught up in the system. Mm -hmm. So we provide uh, alternatives to incarceration. We have uh, substance abuse alternatives to incarceration and mental health alternatives to incarceration. It's really trying to keep people out of the system. And then the third part of our work is we don't want to just be a safety net for people after the damage has been done. We don't want to just prevent people from going in. We want to fundamentally change the system that chews up so many young people and so many people in hard-hit, poor communities. So we work on the policies that chew up so many people. So the policies of mass incarceration, the broken windows, policing theory, uh, diversion, bail reform, uh, speedy trial. We work on the systemic problems that really keep so many people incarcerated. And part of those systemic um, challenges is this, uh, almost this perception, um, which is, you know, it doesn't quite sound like, you know, a housing challenge or a, a trust in law enforcement challenge, but perception that those that are locked up um, must be there for a reason. Um, that even if we're in a country whose justice system is rooted in the ethos of uh, um, innocent until proven guilty, there is this this uh, stain almost uh, that, that covers an individual, a human being, as soon as they're even tagged with the charge and then they enter even the justice system before there's even a, a question about you know actual conviction and, and a prison entry. Um, tell us a little bit about how you see the identity of the modern individual who might start on the side of an accusation and might end up on the other side of actually being locked up. And, and specifically, I'm wondering, when we're talking about creating more opportunities for those that work to work in America, mm -hmm. um, and you have this identity of, oh, this person must uh, have a bad background, or this person must be some type of way with malicious intent, I can't trust them in my workplace, that perception um, is probably paired with the perception that begins at the very outset of when they get caught up in some of these challenges. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, as someone that was formerly incarcerated himself, how do you um, advise others to kind of take stock of that identity, and how do you start to chip away at that identity? Well, we challenge it. Uh, and we challenge it by putting forth facts. And so, you know, one of the things that we do, over 50% of our staff are people who have uh, lived experience. And what we do is put a face on it. When people talk about mass incarceration, they talk about it as if it's somebody else, as if it's this distant thing that doesn't really apply to everyday life and everyday experiences. And what we say it does, it does. 
Many people in the United States, when you look at how many people are involved in the criminal justice system, we have slightly under 7 million people involved in the criminal justice system in some way, either incarcerated, detained, on parole or probation, close to 7 million people wow. right now. So there are many families who are touched by this. So this isn't a distant issue that it's them and not us. Right. And so we put a face on it. And we say to people is that we, there are times where people make mistakes in our lives, where we all deserve a second chance. And as a society, if our, the, our criminal justice system is based on innocent until proven guilty, those that are detained, as in New York right now, 8,300 people, 80% of them are not convicted of anything. They are just detained and they can't afford bail. That's why they're being held. If we are a system of fairness and equality for all, when someone serves their time, shouldn't they be able to come back to the community with the right resources to be able to build a new life, get that second chance? And so that's what we, we say to people. We put a face on it. Another prime example is the Uber. Uh, criminal justice background check policy, where they are saying that they are going to exclude people with violent crimes or certain charges. They're going to exclude them from hiring everywhere. According to Uber standards, for me, as a formerly incarcerated man, I've been out since 1991. I'm the executive vice president of the Fortune Society. If I apply for Uber right now because of my last charge, I would not be able to be hired by Uber. And that is wrong. And so what we say is that we don't ask for favoritism. We don't ask to, to say that what somebody did, they shouldn't be held accountable. But we say that we ought to be fair and we ought to be supportive. And it's about investing so that it doesn't happen again. And, and a lot of that thinking has started to pierce through um, mainstream policymaking, for lack of a better term. The reason I say mainstream is, as you said, unless you're focused on it, it's too easy to feel that this is a distant concept or a distant policy challenge that's not my own. But with that 7 million people affected or touched by the, the entire ecosystem here, there are also reverberating families that are touched by it. Um, so it, one thought that's cutting through across states in the U.S. is this notion of banning the box mm -hmm. and that maybe if we to, were to start even offering um, employment applications that looked a little different with a little benign edit of not focusing on whether or not you, you know, had a former um, you know, felony charge or were arrested or convicted of a crime, that could also start to change the perception of a candidate, even when that candidate is just a person on paper in a stack in an HR room, right? That's um, that is starting to become a dialogue. I know Governor Brown in California, for example, signed ban the box legislation. President Obama kicked up a lot of conversations around this as well. Um, if you take that attempt on the one hand as here's a way that we should focus on the merits of an individual, and then you were to, you're an entrepreneurial man, um, you, you help run a massive uh, budget at this, at this organization. Um, if you're talking to an entrepreneur like an Uber-type uh, environment or, or talking to a startup that's trying to balance, I want to provide a work opportunity, but I also want to provide trust and safety in the workplace, right? Whether you're talking to Uber or whether you're talking to that office that has that, you know, that candidate stack of resumes, how can you, how do you at Fortune Society convince folks to get past this risk perception? 
that we can stand side by side with one another and not be worried about getting to a car and just because they have a record, your life is at risk or just because they have a past that when you're around the water cooler with them, something's going to go wrong. Like, how, what's the approach of changing that? The approach is first changing the lens, right? Uh, many people hear what we advocate for as don't do background checks, don't, don't look at the history. What we're saying is if you look at the history, do it after you found the person to be qualified, right? So you, you eliminate all of the discrimination, you eliminate all of the perceptions about who a particular person is, and you evaluate their ability to do the job based on the merits. Once the merits are out the way and you say this person based on the skills is the right person I need to fill my job, then you do an individualized assessment about what that person may pose as a risk. So I would say to Uber is don't do blanket uh, uh, denials that because of this particular crime, they can't work for Uber. You take the time to look at the individual. You take the time, as I said, for me, if I applied for Uber today, they would deny me because my last charge was a robbery, right? That's considered a violent crime, although no one got hurt. They would deny me. But if they looked at who I am, and the work I did, I'm sure they would hire me. Yeah. So, so what we're saying is that you have to look at the individual. Don't do the blanket, this person has a record, this person equals bad. This person has a record, this person requires and, and deserves the ability to demonstrate rehabilitation, the ability to demonstrate that they can do the job, and the, the ability to get a fair shake when it comes to employment. And so as a nation, we need to start changing the lens by which we look at people with criminal justice involvement. And as, we're beginning to do that. As a, as a country, um, the United States has these certain givens almost when it comes to uh, giving people second chances or not. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that we designate certain um, actions in this country, whether it is uh, everything from a benign thing to, um, you know, going after your best friend's girlfriend uh, romantically to um, allegations of, of sexual assault or battery uh, to child molestation. Um, these are varied and unrelated examples and each egregious in their own right. But with this concept of who should be given a second chance or not, uh, it seems that we are sort of deep in our, our, our kind of emotional and ideological conviction um, that X is true or Y is true. Mm -hmm. um, the entire Fortune Society is based on changing the perception of, of one of those uh, challenges to, to our past. Uh, and I'm curious, for the workers, for those that go through this program, what does it feel like to actually be someone who is then embraced for now having a second chance? I mean, obviously you mentioned you employ a lot, but there are a lot of people you put through into jobs outside of Fortune Society. Tell us a little bit about their reaction and, and their sentiment when they can feel welcome again. Well, part of what we do at the Fortune Society is we say we create the world we wish we lived in. And so when a person walks through our doors, we don't ask what you did. We don't ask what you got convicted of. We just ask, who do you want to be now that your life post-incarceration uh, starts right now? And we work from that perspective. I remember there was a time in my life where I didn't have self-esteem. I didn't see the beauty in myself. 
And I live my life like that. And so at Fortune, what we do is we see the beauty in people sometimes before they see it in themselves. And we hold that image true in all of our interactions with that individual. We don't interact with them as if they have a handicap. We don't interact with them because they committed a particular crime. We say, whoever you want to be, let's work our tails off to get to that particular place. And sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes we see the potential and the beauty in others and they don't see it and it, our job is to get them to see it and then once they see it, to see them grow and to see them blossom. And what we know is people learn how to live the life that society sees them living. So if society sees people That's as right. bad people, if society sees them as throwaways, people feel it, people know it, and people learn how to accept it and how to live that life. But if you see people who have been involved in the criminal justice system, as people that are strong, people that are powerful, people that are willing to change their life, people that have the skills and abilities to live a different life, people will live that life too. And so at Fortune, we, we see the life that they could live and then work with them to live it. America, as you and I were discussing earlier, also has um, a bit of a spending problem when it comes to investments in incarceration. Um, per capita spend on a public, a public school uh, student in this country is significantly lower than the per capita spend of anyone even within the prison system. Um, why is it that our elected officials or even just community organizers, anyone that is interested in these dynamics, why is it that it is so easy to campaign on this promise of investing in the children of today as our leaders of tomorrow, and yet our budget appropriations at the municipal level, at the state level, at the federal level, don't reflect that? We have not held our political leaders accountable for that. When you look over the last 33 years, you see the education budget in this country go from something like $250 billion to $534 billion. So over 100% growth. If you look at the criminal justice budget investments, we went from $17 billion to $71 billion, more than triple wow. the budget of what it was 33 years ago. Wow. So yes, there's a saying that um, our values are expressed through what we spend. And we have not invested in education, we have not invested in uh, smaller classrooms, but we have invested in large jails, we have invested in institutions, we have invested in criminal justice. So as a country, we need to examine that. Here's another startling fact that should shock people to their core. We represent less than 4% of the world's population, less than 4%. But yet, our criminal justice system represents 25% of the world's prison population. Wow. We are doing worse, and it's sort of hard to, 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 to nail this down, but some of the data shows that as a country that is supposed to be progressive, as a country that is supposed to be the wealthiest country, as a, as a country that is supposed to care about its people, if you look at our budget priorities, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't walk the talk. Yeah. We invest in prisons, we don't invest in higher education, we don't invest in education, we don't invest in diversion, we invest in punishment. And that's true for our country and, and at Fortune, we have been saying we have to shift that. And today I was so glad to hear the Secretary of Labor, Costa, say we need to invest in people coming home from prison and getting them into the workforce. 
that is a huge shift uh, for this administration to, to go out there and say, we need to be paying attention to formerly incarcerated people as it relates to the world of work. And you, know, you, you mentioned a, a point of diversion earlier. Um, there, there's an ongoing debate when it comes to uh, recidivism and you know, those repeat offenders that if we were to focus less on steering them into the punitive uh, penalties of, of t uh, jail time and more into rehabilitation services, whether that's because of a, a criminal activity, a drug-related activity, or any, any other number of things. Um, you mentioned earlier that there are these systemic challenges uh, that we can try and address. How has rehabilitation um, worked for residents in New York City as a way to kind of get out of that um, entry into prison? Well, if it, let's look at the data, right? When I was involved in the criminal justice system in 1986, 1991, in New York City, there was 22,000 people detained in New York City corrections. Today, we have 8,300. Uh, so we've seen the number come down. We've seen the number of people detained in our system come down. We've also seen the number of crimes coming down. So this notion that we could arrest and punish our way into safer communities in New York City has been busted, right? We have the, one of the biggest, safest cities in the country. We also have, uh, for our criminal justice, seen the numbers come down. So we could make have safe communities without doing mass incarceration. We've seen this mayor invest in alternatives to incarceration programs and diversion programs. He's committed to closing Rikers Island, one of the most notorious jails in this country. People around the world know about Rikers Island because of the brutality and, and, and the size of it and just how much human misery goes on there, both for those that are detained there, the families who have to visit, and the officers who have to work there. He's committed to closing it. He's committed to have a smaller footprint. Just imagine this. A city of 8 million people will have a criminal justice footprint with only 5,000. That is a model for this country, that we can have safe communities, we can have a smaller criminal justice system. And our hope at Fortune and in the criminal justice community is that we take those savings and reinvest it into the communities that have been hardest hit by incarceration, by having smaller classrooms, after school programs, summer jobs, summer youth programs for young people. Take those and invest it in those communities so we never have to repeat what we have over the last 10 years. There's this um, sense of uh, an us versus them mentality that we've been talking about. And in, in this case, um, the, the incarcerated or those that come out of the system, um, they are this other. They're different. They're different from us. Um, whereas you see kind of a very strong analogy in what's going on in this country uh, swirling around an immigration debate that this is an, another person different from me. Why are they getting access to opportunities in my country? Um, curious whether you think at this point in American history, um, when we think about our identity, what can we learn from the, the sort of the plight and the otherization and frankly the um, deprioritization of, of people, of human beings, neighbors, brothers, sisters, uh, mothers who, who are involved in the, in the uh, 
uh, criminal justice system, and, and they are f treated like outsiders, or they are pushed to the side when it comes to access to opportunities. Are there insights that we can derive from that type of feeling in America, or the um, current mood of an immigrant who might be uncertain in America, that we should take stock of when we think about who we are as a nation, who we are as an identity? Absolutely. And I would say the, the, the starting point for that is the labels that we assign to people. I think labels, we live in a complex world, and we have a lot of information that is coming at us, particularly in the age of technology, that we need to understand. And there's, there's a usefulness in sort of having shorthand that helps us understand and navigate this world. But when we use labels, we minimize people and we ostracize people. And, and, and those labels need to go. We are all brothers and sisters. We are humans. We are Americans first. We are people first. And, and I think that's the way that we need to get past whether it's immigration, whether it's criminal justice, whether it's mental illness. If you look at vulnerable populations, if you look at people who've been impacted by poverty, if you look at people who've been impacted by the criminal justice system or mental health, one thing always happens is once you label them, you can then minimize them and you can then otherize them. And when you otherize them, it's real easy to make decisions that will impact their lives and the lives of their family and their communities and, and do it in a way where you won't feel any sort of pain or any obligation to the pain that you're causing them. And so we need to take those labels away. We've seen mental health be criminalized. In, in New York City, 40% of the people who are detained on Rikers Island had some interaction with the mental health uh, services. 40%. That's because we closed down institutions. We then sent people who needed residential care and community-based care, we sent them to jail. You take homelessness, you take any issue that um, labels a population, society has a tendency, once you label them, to otherize them. And we've done that with homelessness, mental illness, we've done it with criminal justice, and now we're doing it with immigration. Immigration and criminal justice, there's a huge overlap between uh, immigration and, and criminal justice because we have labeled them and now we are making them other than our family, our community members, people to be valued, people to be respected, people to be held accountable. If they violated the law, they need to be held accountable. But how do you hold them accountable? I think for anyone that ever doubts uh, in this moment of, you know, a lot of cultural and political tension in America, anyone who ever doubts who, who are or what are our American identity is now, I think it is ripe with hope and optimism when someone looks no further than the story of Stanley Richards. You are a gentleman that experienced and engaged the criminal justice system, went through it, and are now running an organization, the Fortune Society, looking out for others. That couldn't be more American and appreciate your service and your leadership. Thank you. Right Thank you. Thanks it's for joining. It's a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. 
Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.